And also on the Sentinel Sentinel site, you'll find uh, I have various translators who do an incredible job. It's a a lot of work translating, especially at the start-up when they're not really too used to it. Then they get in the hang of things, and then it speeds up. So anyone who wants to try their hand at translating into various languages, uh, and they can always take it off, the initial English one, if they want to, and transpose it. You can get in touch with me as well by emailing alanwattcuttingthrough at yahoo.com. And I'll be back with more after this break. Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. For some time, I've gone on about the big plan for depopulation and how it's run and how it's always put out under deceptive guise by very powerful, very, very powerful, rich groups that network together, the big foundations that often have members in government and when they're not in government they're back working with the foundations so they have their own agendas of which they push when they're in politics and then they're advisors to politicians once they're they're actually in and this goes back a long time uh, under the guise of uh, socialism socialism is one term for all of this but a long time ago they realized that uh, it didn't really matter what term it was the whole idea of socialism or, or communism uh, it's really where government is in charge of all the means of production. It's in charge of the wealth of the people. Everything is really held by the state. Uh, on behalf, of course, of the people uh, who have to go a cap in hand to use anything. But that's the idea of socialism. As a dominant minority, uh, they'll have total control over the entire, not just countries, but the world. And the Fabian society was only one of, very, the very, uh, of a whole bunch of very important groups that really were all branches of the one organization, an organization that started up, at least we can see, see this part of it starting up with Cecil Rhodes and then blending with the Rhodes Foundation with the Mil- Lord Milner Society, the big Lord Milner group that was comprised of big bankers, including Milner himself, who was a banker, and how they became the Royal Institute for International Affairs also called Council on Foreign Relations. The same guys who drafted up the charts for amalgamation of the Americas, who came out openly on television in Canada, on national television, CBC, and basically said that they were the ones who were behind this amalgamation so that we could compete with Europe. And they were also, of course, behind the whole amalgamation of Europe as well. They planned the centuries, well, under the guise of, of saving the world from global warming, uh, climate change, uh, and all the other scary things that are out there today. These are the guys, they're bringing in socialism. That's really what it is, where, where big foundations work with governments, taking over land, taking over under guises of ecology, saving the spotted owl or whatever it happens to be. And there's a very good video up there. I'll put the link up at the end of my show to the video. And it, it's been out for a few years, but it shows you the techniques that they use. And you'll even realize that some of these big, what you think are um, 
wildlife conservation societies are actually massive real estate companies with multi-million, maybe billion-dollar investments. And they also have grassroots movements, the ones that are conned at the bottom, the naive little teenagers that walk around with tin cans to save things and so on. Well, at the top, uh, they can send up 400 people into an area and ask to buy their houses or their land. And if you don't comply, they report you to the EPA because you can pull strings. And the EPA comes along and says, oh, gee, you know, this is wrong with your house, that's wrong with your house, uh, we're going to fine you, etc. So your, your house is here taken from you. Uh, or it's devalued. And guess who buys it? These big conservation societies. And then they, they double or triple the price and sell it to the government that then turn, turns the whole area into a park. That's how it works. And you'll even hear in that behind the green curtain, this particular one, how it's done. The big foundations, including you'll hear Rockefeller's name mentioned too, how the con works. And you'll see some of the victims, and you'll hear some of the victims tell their stories of what's happened to them. Nothing is ever as it seems. Nothing is ever as it seems. And I keep telling people, if you follow some organization, you're being used. Definitely at the bottom level. Definitely at the bottom. Because all you are is a cheering team or a demanding team that goes on in pickets and parades. And you have no idea of the big con at the top with the multi-millionaires play. None at all. Zilch. And part of the whole movement on socialism, of course, is a planned society and eugenics, getting the right type of people to be born and eliminating the possibilities of the wrong type getting born. Very old agenda, well discussed, all down through the last 150 years or more, and well published. But under different guises, they always come back. Now it's called bioethics, or into bioethics, uh, just a nice name for eugenics. And they're the ones who, who supposedly have the, the right to advise how far science can go in human cloning, etc., which means to them all the way, obviously. But to the public, you think, no, these guys are there to safeguard our rights and interests so they don't go too far and create monsters and elim eliminate us in the process. That's, that's how, like, again, another con works, you see. And you'll find with every new regime and government that's put in, it takes a while for people to catch on especially the ones who vote and are true believers in whoever they think they put in there. I say how, who they think they put in there because it's always appointed uh, and decided beforehand by the big power brokers. And it isn't until they start making appointees and you see who they are that you start to catch on to the same, same socialist agenda. Remember, as I said, the, the Norman Dodds report on the Rees Commission back in the 50s when he was told by the big foundations like the Ford and so on, Carnegie and Rockefeller, their job was to blend the Soviet system with the West. And again, new system would come out as a third way where the two come together. And, well, that's happened, really. And many of the people that, that you talk about, you think that the, it was actually the same then, too. The reason the fraud investigation was they, they wanted to know why all these big multi-billionaires with their charitable trusts and foundations seem to be funding what seem to be all, all communistic Soviet-type causes. This really, really, as I say, the real name is socialism. There's a lot of control freaks out there. And they love power. They gravitate to power because they're psychopathic in nature. It's a natural thing for them. And then we find this too. As I say, people think they're always, 
it's an amazing thing when you think you're the underdog or you are the underdog and you think you've been given rights. Everybody's got a chip in their shoulder and it's here someone speaking for you. And everybody gets up in arms and cheers a verdict in court or something because it's going to, what do you think, give you more rights or freedoms? Just like, the, as I say, the big environmental movements, same thing. They're going to help the animals. It's always another reason behind things, a real reason. And everyone's heard of the Roe versus Wade case. Everyone's heard of it. And this is from cnsnnews.com. And it was an, an, it was an interview they gave with uh, Judge Gin, Ginsburg. This is what she said. She originally thought Roe Ro versus Wade was designed to limit populations that we don't want to have too many of. July the 10th, 2009, by Christopher Nephus. U.S. Supreme Court Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer chat before President Barack Obama has addressed a joint session of Congress in Capitol Hill, Washington, blah, blah, blah. In an interview to be published in Sunday's New York Times magazine, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said she thought the landmark Roe v. Wade decision on abortion was predicated on the Supreme Court's majority's desire to diminish populations that we don't want to have too many of. And everybody else thought, it, oh, it's down to a personal choice for women. It's a political policy. That's what it was. That's what it was. Here's what she said, as I said. She thought the landmark Roe v. Wade decision on abortion was predicated, predicated, right, on the Supreme Court majority's desire to diminish populations that we don't want to have too many of. 90-minute interview. She also gave some talk about this in The Times. Back in a minute with more on this particular area or in this area. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. Just mentioning how this article from cnsnnews.com concerning Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her commenting on what she thought and what the Supreme Court thought the Roe versus Wade decision was based on. But everyone at the bottom level is taught this. It's about this actual action, court action between this and that. And of course, it's bringing rights to do with it, rights, particular individual rights and so on. That's what the, the public think. But here's a, a, a Supreme Court justice telling you that she thought the landmark Roe versus Wade decision on abortion was predicated, predicated, remember, on the Supreme Court's majority desire to diminish populations that we don't want to have too many of. Now, the Supreme Court is supposed to be, according to all what we're told and what's written about them and so on, uh, that they're really non-political, supposedly. Their job is to judge cases and bills and so on and, and against the Constitution, see if this can be done or not done. If they desire... The Supreme Court's majority's desire to diminish populations they don't want too many of is a different kettle of fish. This is a social policy here. You see? That's the telling part there. But as I say, there's always a real reason, a real reason, and it wasn't about personal rights at all. 
happening. I had no idea who's even, it's even happening. Here's an article here from Spiked magazine. And it says, who's afraid of billions of people? In the run-up to the UN's World Population Day, Spiked argues against all attempts to cajole, coerce, or convince people into having fewer kids, children. I always say children, because kids are young go. And I don't want to dehumanize young people. And this is 9th of July, 2009. It says, it is UN World Population Day on Saturday, the 11th of July, when various UN bodies will try to convince us that population growth is the cause of much of the planet's economic and environmental crisis. Here we publish an edited version of a speech given by Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill in London on 3rd of July, in which he argued against all attempts to curb human numbers. And then he, he, he tells you, this uh, actual journalist tells you, today I want to argue that there should be absolutely no limits on population growth and no attempt whatsoever to cajole, coerce, or convince people into having fewer children. I hope that in my lifetime the human population on Earth will reach tens of billions and will not be a problem if in the future it rises to hundreds of billions. The reason I say this is because our attitudes to the population level fundamentally reflect our attitudes to human ingenuity. The population debate is frequently dressed up in demographic and scientific clothing, but really it is a political issue reflecting different political attitudes. Where you stand on population today tells us a lot about where you stand on the idea of progress, civilization, and of humanity itself. It is worth asking what drives the population control and population reduction lobby. These people have been around for a few centuries, and their arguments have changed over time. For one of the first population scaremongers, Thomas Malthus, in the 18th century, the main problem was that if too many people were born, then there wouldn't be enough food to feed them. That's the excuse he gave. He vastly underestimated the ability of industrial society to create more and more food. But Malthus also, remember, worked for the top uh, crown corporations that ran the East India Company and uh, all the other companies that they had at the top which were actually owned by royalty in all the elite of Britain. And they had already, in their, their plantations, uh, they were already using eugenics for breeding slaves, you know, particular sizes and uh, fit, healthy slaves, but not, didn't want too bright. That was all part of it, too. So they fed them special diets and so on. So there's more to it than just numbers, you see. It's about too many of them getting up there and then getting out of hand, losing control over them. And also, Malthus himself was the first one to use all these graphs that are very impressive but mean nothing at all. They're supposed to scare you. And all these projections turned out wrong, all of them. We're supposed to be piled about six deep uh, by about 1900, according to him. It never happened. So they always use fake figures, graphs, and statistics to, to cajole and fear you into where they want you to, to go. Since the early 20th century, there was a racial and eugenic streak to population reduction arguments. Some claimed that there were too many Ameri Africans and Asians who might weaken the power of white European nations. More recently, the population control lobby has adopted environmentalist arguments. Very important because, as I say, that ties in with socialism and the government will take control of everything, including all the land, which is happening. And now says that too many people are demanding too much of Mother Earth using up all the resources and destroying her biodiversity. Some Greens even refer to humans as a plague on the planet and a pathogenic organism. In other words, humanity is a disease making the planet Earth sick. You see? So he goes through this, this argument. 
and then he has uh, a, a, an answer. And I put these links up so you can read them for yourself, and he's got it on, on his magazine too, Spike. It's an answer by the Optimum Population Trust. You know, that, that bunch that are behind Prince Charles in the speech he gave last week on the same topic of how, how to must reduce the population. What they really mean again is the wrong, you know, they don't want the right, the wrong type overpopulating. The wrong type. So the Optimum Population Trust, and they're a big charitable, charitable philanthropic organization uh, that's in league with all the abortion clinics across the planet because they help fund them. Give a reply, and I'll read this reply when I come back from this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. We read an article on Spike Magazine, and it's a reply from the Optimum Population Trust. Uh, to this particular uh, Spike reporter, and this is what it says. Now, again, often population trusts have centers across the planet. Again, massive funding, big foundations and all that. And they have the ear of, of politicians. In fact, they might even have boards on politics now, I think, in Britain, uh, members of the board, uh, on the actual politicians' boards for government. And here they are, a private organization, with an agenda, a socialist agenda, another agenda altogether from the one we talk about. And, it, and this is what they said. On April the 1st, 2009, Brendan O'Neill reported from the Optimum Population Trust Conference in London. And it says here, below Adrian Scott, a trustee of the Optimum Population Trust, responds. It says, spiked editor Brendan O'Neill attended the recent Environmentally Sustainable Populations Conference put on by the Optimum Populations Trust. According to his report on Spike on 1st of April, he didn't enjoy it, not because of the scary picture the event painted, but because the one he described was quite different. No, it was the characteristics of the speakers and the audience that really upset him. What he means by that, I suppose, and I've seen this before with these characters, everyone's so fanatical about bringing the population, it's like being in the middle of a Nazi rally or something. And remember, the business suits are the, really the Nazi uniforms of the day. There's more slaughter being done because of, because of orders given by guys in suits and ties at the heads of countries than, than uniforms ever cost. It says here, of course, putting one's own words into a messenger's mouth and then shooting him can be much easier than dealing with his real message. The Ottoman Population Trust, that's Prince Charles's backers, actually welcomes being taken to task, especially on matters of principle. If it can't justify its positions, then it accepts that it should change them. However, it does get frustrated when it's accused of espousing views that it actually opposes. Measure hypocrisy again. Or is condemned on information that is irrelevant or simply wrong. When it comes to population and bringing the population, nothing is irrelevant in a conversation. Nothing. <laughs> Yet from conversations I have had with O'Neill, I found that he and actually I share many principles. I don't understand why he doesn't see that too. Now that's standard with groups when they, when they do these 
um, getting on board with consensus idea. They say, never mind the differences, let's see what we have in common, and then they build from there. Before you know it, they've just been taken over. That's not how they do it. It's a technique, it's taught. So he starts, he says, with some facts. Earth's human population is already at a level well in excess of that which the ecosystem can sustain. In other words, in each period we're now using up more natural resources than the environment produces. We're spending all our biological income and then running down the capital to cover the rest of our consumption. Do that for too long and the capital runs out. So they're using all the stuff you're hearing in the media by the incessant um, mantras of sustainability. And it goes on to do with the fishing industry. Perhaps the clearest example of this is fish. We're now catching a significantly greater weight of many species each year than the living stock grows. If that, if that was true, uh, how could you catch a greater weight of the fish than that that has been produced by the fish? Anyway, never mind the facts. The result is that the average age of many such fish has dropped substantially. We're now catching only youngsters because they never get the chance to grow big. So this is like fact is given you, but he doesn't give you any data to, to chew it. But this is standard with them. For years, the several bumper catches, the catches were presented by the fishing industry, driven by the ever-rising price of landed fish, as evidence that no reductions in take, in take are needed in catchment, he means. Then suddenly, there's no longer enough fish alive to make up a year's take, and the fishery abruptly collapses. Note that the fishing industries were closed down even in Canada by orders of governments. For, and after many years, where they're allowing foreign fish in, in trawlers, deep fishing trawlers, where they scour the bottoms to, to, to scour the, the lands or, or the seas off Nova Scotia, etc. But they weren't allowing, allowing the Canadians to do it. You see? That's what really did it. And most fish now that we're getting have been raised in these farms anyway for years. Farms. So then he goes on to this. Climate change is occurring because we're putting pollutants in the atmosphere faster than it can clean itself. Even though with no factories left in the Western Hemisphere, almost hardly a thing left. We've got cleaner air than we've ever had before, and rivers, etc. But no, that just, facts don't matter when there's an agenda here, you see. So he gives us, he gives us the, the, the fear language. Overconsumption has already badly damaged many of the very systems that keep us alive, and our numbers are still growing fast. Now, the UN, the, the UN's other part of its own mouth will give you the stats every year on the declining male in the Western world and with sterility. They'll also give you, from all the census directors of, of the different countries, they'll give you the falling populations of the people, the native peoples of those countries. And they'll also tell you that increased immigration is the only way that the population is getting up and appears to be growing. This immigration has been for years and years and years and years and years. And Maggie Thatcher, remember, when she was in office, said the reason she was opening the floodgates from India or to India and immigration was because there weren't enough people being born in Britain to pay off the national debt. So it's all nonsense what this guy is saying, but nonsense doesn't matter when, when it's a familiar mantra. And all these things he's talking about are familiar mantras. You see? Because they all have an agenda. Why do they exist? Why do they exist? He also mentions the fact that he said that there have been a lot of criticisms of the Ottoman Population Trust because there's so many so older white men on the board. What he's really meaning is the upper crust and sirs and so on. And there are. They've always been. It's always the upper elite there. They've been worried about the peasantry, too much peasantry, just like Malthus. 
goes on to the next one too. See, the same groups, you see, the same massive movement, really socialism under many guises. Socialism, again, is a, is a dominant minority running, not just countries, but the world. And the Fabian society was to take it over from within governments, slow, slow, intergenerationally across the world, and bring in a world governmental system of legislation. A world government, basically. Wells talked about it. He also was a eugenicist and wanted to cull down the useless leaders. Read his book. His book, a sort of novelistic idea of how the utopia would be in the future once they'd sterilized all the, the, the bad quality ones. And he says that in his book, A Modern Utopia. You see? Read it, because he was just parroting his predecessors and many that came after him, working for the same organizations, parrot him. Never changes. So they tried, the same groups you see tried before they came up with animal rights and the spotted owl and some odd frog that might or might not exist at all in many places and took farms away and so on. And you see it once again, read, uh, go and see that video uh, behind the green curtain. Excellent, excellent video, see. Here's what they were using back in the 70s. The same guys who are now writing books on global warming, etc. Here's what they were saying in the 70s. This is from Time. CNN's Time. From the archives. June 24th, 1974. Another Ice Age question mark. And it goes on. In Africa, here's how they, see how they set up the, the imagery for you by the wording they use. Drought continues for the sixth consecutive year, adding terribly to the toll, the toll of famine victims. During 72 record rains in parts of the U.S., Pakistan, and Japan caused some of the worst flooding in centuries. In centuries, there you go. In Canada's wheat belt, particularly chilly and rainy spring, has delayed planting and may well bring a disappointingly small harvest. Rainy Britain, on the other hand, has suffered from uncharacteristic dry spells the past few springs. A series of unusually cold winters has gripped the American Far West, while New England and North Europe have recently experienced the mildest winters with anyone's recollection. As they review the bizarre and unpredictable weather pattern of the past several years, a growing number of scientists are beginning to suspect that many seemingly contradictory meteorological fluctuations are actually part of a global climatic upheaval. However, widely the weather varies from place to place and time to time. When meteorologists take an average of temperatures around the globe, they find the atmosphere has been growing gradually cooler for the past three decades. I guess they've forgotten all this stuff. And they give us all the, all the modern stuff, eh? The trend shows no indication of reversing. Climatological Cassandras are becoming increasingly apprehensive for the weather aberrations they are studying may be the harbinger of another ice age. Telltale signs are everywhere, from the unexpected persistence and thickness of pack ice in the waters around Iceland to the southward migration of a warmth-loving creature like the armadillo from the Midwest. Since the 1940s, the mean global temperature has dropped about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Although that figure is at best an estimate, it's supported by other convincing data. When climatologist George G. Kulka of, or Kukla of Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Geological Observatory and his wife Helena analyzed satellite weather data for the Northern Hemisphere, they found the area of the ice and snow covered had suddenly increased by 12% in 1971. 
and the increase has persisted ever since. Wow. Areas of Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic, for example, were once totally free of any snow in summer. Now they're covered year-round. Scientists have found other indications of global cooling. For one thing, there's been a noticeable expansion of the great belt of dry, high-altitude polar winds, the so-called circumpolar vortex that sweep from west to east around the top and bottom of the world. Indeed, it's a widening of this cap of cold air that is the immediate cause for Africa's drought. By blocking moisture, bearing equatorial winds, and preventing them from bringing rainfall to the parts of Sahara region, as well as other drought-ridden areas, stretching all the way from Central America to the Middle East and India, the polar winds have in effect caused the Sahara and other deserts to reach further to the south. Paradoxically, the same vortex has created quite different weather quicks in the U.S. and other temperate zones. As the winds swirl around the globe, their southerly portions undulate like the bottom of a skirt. Cold air is pulled down across the, the, the north, the western U.S., and warm air is swept up to the northeast. The collision of air masses of widely different temperatures and humidity can create violent storms. The Midwest's recent rash of disastrous tornadoes, for example. <gasps> wow. Wow. That's what they had back then. And all the big boys at the United Nations went into churning out books on the coming ice age. The coming ice age. Oh, my God. The polar caps are just sticking at such a rate. Rog when he freeze to death. You see? And they're also sh- shouting that government wasn't doing no- enough about it. Just like they're doing today. They get the public at the bottom to shout, help us, save us. This is from a, a website called Sweetness and Light. Sweetness and Light. And it's got an article here from 1975 from Newsweek magazine. It says... This is from the April the 28th issue of Newsweek, 1975. The Cooling World. See, they're all getting in on it at the same time. By Peter Gwynn. And this is also 28th of April, 75. There are ominous signs that the Earth's weather patterns have begun to change dramatically. And these changes may portend a drastic decline in food production with serious political implications for just about every nation on Earth. The drop in food output could begin quite soon, perhaps only 10 years from now, the region is destined to feel its impact of the great wheat-producing lands of Canada and the USSR. In the north, along with the number of marginally self-sufficient tropical areas, parts of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and China, and China, and Indonesia, where the growing season is dependent upon the rains brought by the monsoon. The evidence in support of these predictions has now begun to accumulate so massively that meteorologists are hard-pressed to keep up with it. In England, farmers have seen a growing season decline by about two weeks since 1950, with the resultant overall loss in grain production estimated at up to 100,000 tonnes annually. During the same time, the average temperature on the equator has risen by a fraction of a degree. A fraction in some areas can mean drought and desolation. Last April, the most devastating outbreak of tornadoes ever recorded, 148 twisters killed more than 300 people and caused half a billion dollars worth of damage in 13 U.S. states. To scientists, these seeming disparate incidents represent advanced signs of fundamental changes in the world's weather. Meteorologists disagree about the cause and extent of the trend, but as well as over its specific impact on local weather conditions. But they're almost unanimous in the view that the trend will reduce agriculture productivity for the rest of the century. If the climatic change is profound as some of the pessimists fear, the resulting famines could be catastrophic. And then they go into the National Academy of Science and food and so on, blah, 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 blah. And once again, 
they're indicating that they were going to be covered in snow from now on. This is back in the 70s. According to George Kukla of Columbia University, satellite photos indicate a sudden large increase in northern hemisphere snow cover in the winter of 71 to 72. Necessary released last month by two NOAA scientists. Scientists notes that the amount of sunshine reaching the ground in the continental U.S. diminished by 1.3% between 64 and 1972. <clears throat> then they go on to sort of placate the layman. To the layman, the relatively small changes in temperature and sunshine can be highly misleading. So then he goes on to tell you how, but to the scientists, they're now going into the temperatures during the Great Ice Ages, which is only 7 degrees lower than during its warmest eras. So the present decline has taken the planet about a sixth of the way towards the Ice Age average. Others regard that cooling as a reversion to the Little Ice Age, conditions that brought bitter winters to much of Europe and America between 1600 and 1900. When the Thames used to freeze and Londoners roast, roasted oxen on the ice and when ice boats sailed the Hudson River almost as far south as New York City. So then they go on to the experts and scientists and all the catastrophes that the coming ice age was going to bring. You see? I'll put these links up for you to have a, a little peek at. But it's, it's just uh, astonishing. And I've also got a link to a whole bunch of older articles to do with coming ice ages, etc. That was mainstream, and it shows you the same technique that the mainstream was using that time as they're using, using right now with the scientists all on board. Only they've changed it to global warming. Now it's just climate change, you see, etc. Which is very safe as climate change. It means the weather is always changing. You can't go too far wrong with that. Not too far. Another one to do with uh, the topic, because these all, these all tie together. You see total control of government over the world, depopulation, etc. And this also ties in with someone that Obama has on his staff, John Holdren, John H-O-L-D-R-E-N, Holdren, Obama's science czar. Something he wrote in the 70s says, forced abortions and mass sterilization are needed to save the planet. From a book he authored in 77, it's called a planetary regime. You see, he wants a planetary regime to, to be brought in, you should say, um, with the power of life and death over American citizens. He says, the tyrannical fantasies of a madman are merely the opinions of the person now in control of science policy in the United States for the government, or both. Madmen or, tyrann- or tyrants, which is it, or both. Back with more on this uh, dualistic character after this break. through the matrix. Everyone should be terrified when you see who's being appointed because it's no coincidence that I start off with one Sotomayor and her comments and go through the other techniques of you know, we must all sacrifice to save the world and so on uh, and then finish off with John Holdren who wrote a book in the 1977 uh, where he advocated extreme totalitarian measures to control the population by abortion etc. and sterilization. It says, uh, these ideas, among many others, equally horrifying recommendations. This is from a zombie blog. It's quite good. 
uh, were put forth by John Holdren, whom Barack Obama has recently appointed director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, policy, remember, assistant to the President for Science and Technology and co-chair of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, and formerly known as the United States Science Czar. They're using all these post-democratic terms now. In a book Holden co-authored in 77, the, main, the man now firmly in control of science policy in this country wrote that women could be forced to abort their pregnancies whether they wanted to or not. The population at large could be sterilized by infertility drugs intentionally put into the nation's drinking water or in food. He's missed out injections there because they've already been doing that. Single mothers and teen mothers should have had their babies seized from them against their will and given away to couples to raise, to other couples to raise. People who cont- contribute to social deterioration, that's the undesirables. I've read the, the, the Cold Springs Harbor from the Eugenics Association that the Rockefellers and Carnegie's were into. That's what they called it too. The undesirables can be required by law to exercise reproductive responsibility. In other words, to be compelled to have abortions or be sterilized. A transnational, the international planetary regime could assume control of the global economy. How will they do that? Through saving the environment. Of course, he doesn't say that, but that's what it is. And also dictate the most intimate details of Americans' lives using an armed international police force. It is impossible, you say, this must be an exaggeration or a hoax. No, one in their right mind would say such things. That's why they get away with it. We can't understand the psychopath who's a real fanatic, the fanatical psychopath. Well, I hate to break the news to you, but it's no hoax, no exaggeration. John Holden really did say these things, and this report contains the proof. Below you'll find photographs, scans, transcriptions of pages in the book, Ecoscience, that's what he called it. The book is called Ecoscience by John Holdren, co-authored in 77 by John Holdren and his close colleagues Paul Ehrlich. Remember Paul Ehrlich, that wonder guy who also talked about the coming Ice Age, and Anne Ehrlich. The scans and photos are provided to supply conclusive evidence that the words attributed to Holdren are unaltered and accurately transcribed. The report was originally inspired by this article in Front Page magazine, which covers some of the same information given here. Then it goes on and on and on about what it contains. But you see the pages, you'll see the direct quotes from John Holdren's Ecoscience. It's amazing. It's amazing. For instance, it's got compulsory abortions would be legal. Compulsory. It says, indeed, it has been concluded that compulsory population control laws, even including laws requiring compulsory abortion, could be sustained under the existing constitution if the population crisis became sufficiently severe to endanger the society. Who decides that? Guess who? Probably the same types that, that this, uh, the one I started with, the Supreme Court judge, Ginsburg, was talking about the Supreme Court, if it's their policy, I suppose. That's how it's really done, isn't it? Boy, are we in trouble. And Hitler is a Boy Scout compared to the, the ones who are dominating the countries and they're all working together on the same agenda in these days of change. That's it for tonight. So from Hamish to myself, from Ontario, Canada, where the sun never shines except for a couple of days in the year, it's good night and may your God or your gods go with you.